you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of 2 Kings, please? The book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings, we're going to start in chapter 2. We're going to read the first 14 verses together as we begin to pivot from the ministry of Elijah to the ministry of Elisha. 2 Kings, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they, went on, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that today you would get to the heart of our fears. I pray that, Father, this morning would begin a journey for all of your children here to walk out of a life of fear and into a life of faith and faithfulness. I pray that for each of us, we would be clarified and called and discerned by a fear of the Lord and no longer a fear of the man or what might be. That, Lord, you would allow your people to walk in the fullness of freedom that has been secured for them by Jesus Christ. We ask these things now in his name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a fear that incarcerates, and there is a fear that liberates. There is a fear that can turn your whole life into a prison, no matter how free you are. And there is a Fear that can set you free in your life, no matter how oppressed you may seem from the outside. 
In 2018, the University of Purdue did a study. And they did a study on the correlation between income and quality of life or satisfaction of life. And what they discovered is that the correlation is actually the opposite of what many of us believe it to be. That what they discovered is that once a family together makes $105,000, that overall the well-being and satisfaction in life of that family actually declines. Now that isn't a universal principle. It doesn't mean it's the case for every family. It means overall the correlation that they saw. In fact, what they saw is not only was that family less likely to say that they were satisfied with their lives, they actually were able to see that their children were more anxious, more depressed, and more prone to substance abuse. Now, why is that? They began to seek that out. And, and there are a lot of factors, but the overriding factor that the University of Purdue was able to discern was that the, the, the more affluent you were, the more pressure you felt to continue to rise among your friends. The more pressure you felt to sustain the standard of living that you've provided for your family, the more pressure you felt to win the comparisons with all of your neighbors. And so the more money they made, the more pressure they felt, the more they worked, the more their children felt like they had to live up to the standard or be able to be entitled to all of the things that life came and the more their quality and satisfaction of life would decline. Now I want you to contrast that with my pastor friends in Eswatini. If you go to Eswatini with me and you were to lead, and some of you have, and you were to help me lead the pastor's conference, what you would recognize is that you were ministering to people that are at the very lowest ends of poverty. Some of the pastors there live on as little as 20 or 30 U.S. dollars per month, per month, to provide for their family. And by the way, the supplies over there are not cheaper than they are here, I can assure you. You think the cost of living is less, but it's just a lower standard of living altogether. Many of them do without food. Many of them do without basic necessities, or at least those that we perceive. And they will walk miles and miles or, or use a bicycle and go across what you would think would be an impossible road to ride a bicycle on so that they can come and be able to have access to what may likely be the only theological education that is available to them. In fact, they live in a country that is per capita the highest HIV infection rate in the world. Many of their families, friends, are HIV positive. Some of them are HIV positive. There are orphanages throughout the land because so many parents have went on into eternity because of the HIV epidemic. But do you know what they do when there's downtime at the conference? Do you know what they do? They don't check the Dow Industrial Average. That's a hint. They don't scroll Facebook to see how they're comparing with all of their buddies. They aren't watching TikTok videos that are giving them life hacks and showing them how happy or miserable everybody else is. They sing. They sing. When there's downtime between the sessions, they aren't looking at Facebook. They're singing together without an instrument, without air conditioning, without a speaker system, without, uh, without any of the modern trappings of, of Western worship services. They're just singing to the Lord using a, a unified and acapella voice to bring glory and praise to the Lord in what is one of the most beautiful sounds you could ever hear. Isn't that amazing? That is that, that first group of people their greatest fear is what might be. 
Their greatest fear is what they might lose. Their greatest fear is what they might not be able to buy. Their greatest fear is what they might not be able to accomplish. And yet those who barely have the necessities say, what I have is what I have. My greatest fear is that I would not use every moment possible to bring glory to the name of the Lord. One of those is a prison. One of those is a beautiful freedom. One of those is a prison. One of those is a beautiful freedom. And what we're going to see as we walk through the journey of Elisha's ministry over the next four weeks is we're going to see that your relationship with fear determines the direction and the quality of your life. That what you fear and how you fear it and how you respond to those opportunities of fear will determine where your life ends up and it will determine, as, we, as the University of Purdue discovered, the satisfaction that you have with your life therein. As we saw last week, Elijah was afraid. And I think that's our starting point. That what I want us to see this morning is as we see this transition of ministry from Elijah to Elijah. I want us to see these two contrasting fears that I hope that we're going to be able to elaborate on in the weeks ahead. And we begin with Elijah where we left him there under the broom tree having been brought up out of this place of depression and sense of failure so that we might see him now on the other side. And so the first fear that I want us to see this morning is the fear of what might be. The fear of what might be. Do you know how dictators are able to rule over an entire nation of people unchallenged? They're able to do it by putting them in prison. Now, if you were to take the, the Soviet population in the 1950s, that's 200 million people thereabout. And you can't build a fence big enough, tall enough, strong enough, mighty enough to imprison 200 million people. So do you know what you have to do if you want to put that many people in prison? You have to put them in a psychological one. You have to put them in a psychological prison. And if you go throughout the history, you can look at Nazi Germany. You can look at, uh, you can look at the Soviet Union. You can look at uh, North Korea today. You can look at any variety that you choose. They, they go and they build a psychological prison through the means of fear. And there are two primary modes that they do this with. The first means of fear is they make you afraid of ideas. They make you afraid of ideas. That is that what they try to do is make you fear them not being in control. They try to make you afraid of not being able to adopt their worldview. This is, the, this is the responsibility and role of propaganda in a dictatorship. What I have on the screen here is actually a picture of Soviet-era propaganda. Okay, And this is propaganda particularly aimed to advance the state's, uh, the state's mandate of atheism. And so this particular uh, propaganda poster shows on one side you have someone bowing down, somebody else uh, reading the Bible, and you'll notice they're in darkness. They're in misery. The, the Russian is actually translated as God's slaves. Isn't that interesting? What they're trying to show you is that religion imprisons you. Religion imprisons you. It's to make you afraid of being a Christian. It's making you afraid of what it will cost you. Making it afraid of, of how it will cause you to ruin your life. And on the other side of the poster, there is a perfect Russian couple with their beautiful open manual of, of uh, the Marxist concepts. And below, the Russian translates as masters of life. Masters of life. Do you see what they're doing? They're building a psychological prison. Look. Pursue religion if you want to. Pursue Jesus if you want to. You're pursuing a prison. Don't you want to instead be prosperous? Don't you instead want to be a master of life? Then you need to adopt the Soviet ideals. But 
there's always those people who they just aren't afraid of ideas. There, there are those people who say, no, I will worship the Lord regardless of the cost. And so there's a second type of fear that dictators typically try to use in order to build a prison around the minds and hearts of their people. And it is the prison of terror, the prison of threat, of existential threat. That if I can't get you with the posters, I'll get you with the KGB. Stalin himself took the lives of at least a million of his people directly through the KGB. Probably more than that, certainly more than that, when you begin to factor in what famine costs, what his policies led to, what his wars led to. But at least a million people were snatched, many of them out of the middle of the night. And so you lived with this constant sense of, would dad be taken out of, our, out of his bed in the middle of the night and taken to the gulags where he would have to walk through the snow and ice in negative 50 degree weather in thin garments until he died. And so he builds a prison around their minds and around their hearts. You know what's interesting? Is this is exactly what Jezebel had done in Israel. This is exactly what she had done. What she had done is she had first come and she had tried to persuade Israel through ideas. That if you don't come to Baal, if you don't bow and kiss the feet of Baal, you're going to miss out on prosperity. You're not going to be a master of life. If you don't come and bow and, and bend your knee to Baal, then, then you're going to miss the fullness of what this life has to offer you. You're not going to be able to have all of your dreams come true. You're not going to be able to be a mighty nation among all of the nations. But as we saw with Obadiah and the hundred men that he hid away, that many of the prophets did not capitulate to Jezebel's regime of terror. And so what she did is she uh, she issued an edict through King Ahab as a puppet king that all of those who would not bow the knee to Baal and kiss the feet of Baal, that they would in fact be executed on the spot. And so the prophets go into hiding. And what we saw at the end of last week is after God had done the miraculous work of sending down the fire from heaven and accepting the sacrifice of Elijah, is that Elijah had given in to this threat against his life. He had given in to the fear of Jezebel and what she could bring against him. And that's what leads him beneath the broom tree saying, it is enough, Lord. I would just prefer to die. Thank you. But the Lord restored him, didn't he? The Lord restored him, didn't he? And the Bible is good enough and gracious enough to show us what took place in the life of Elijah after God restored him. And what we're able to see on this side of the broom tree is we're able to see the lies that the fear was feeding into Elijah's life. We're able to see how untrue this fear of what might be, this fear of what threat might come about, this fear of what I may miss out on, this fear of what people may do to me, of what people may think of me, this fear of what might be. We're able to see just how deceptive, dishonest, and and ineffectual it actually is on this side of the broom tree with Elijah see what Elijah shows us is that failure isn't fatal failure isn't fatal I want you to notice there uh, in verse 3 what it says about Elijah it says and it's, it actually says it again we just, I just wasn't able to put more passages up there it says the same thing about Jericho but in verse 3 it says and the sons of prophets were in Bethel now the sons of prophets this is actually a school of prophets or it's a seminary so think about this in the years after the broom tree Elijah just wants to die Elijah has had enough he wants his ministry to be over he turns in his resignation he says God just take me out of this misery already after that do you know what he did he had his most effective years of ministry yet 
That God used Elijah in the decade after his, his, his perceived failure to establish at least two schools of prophets through whom the prophetic ministry would be able to be advanced. That no longer would it just be a single man, it would be a multiplicity of men all being invested in by the leader of God's prophets. That the work of the prophets might be advanced. Now think about that. Think about that. Fear told Elijah that he was finished. Fear told Elijah there was nothing left for him. God told Elijah he was just getting started. Fear told Elijah that his life was in the hands of Jezebel. God says there is no one and nothing that can take you out of my grip. That God takes this low moment of Elijah's life and he uses it as a beginning for his most productive season of ministry yet. And he proves through the establishment of these schools of prophet that the fear of what might be, the fear of what Jezebel threatened was in fact dishonest from the start. I wonder how many of you this morning, there's so many things that you know the Lord would have you to do. You know there are ways that the Lord would have you to teach and instruct your children, but you're nervous and afraid of how that's going to go. You know there are people that that you work with that you need to share the good news with. You know that there's a a career move that you need to, to make, but it's a really difficult one. But it's one that you know that God has put fire in your bones about. There's a ministry that you need to start, but you haven't done it. And the reason that you haven't done it is because you have been paralyzed by the fear of what might be. Do you see what's happening in Elijah's life? Elijah would have been the first one to say, but what if I fall? What if I fall? And isn't that what you're asking by the fear of what might be? What if I fail? What if I fail and fail yet again? What if it doesn't work out? What if what is my worst nightmare becomes my reality? You see what God is saying right here? If I only worked through people who didn't fall, I wouldn't work through anybody at all. The only people that God has to work through are fallen people, broken people, people that have fallen flat on their faces. And yet the Lord says that that person that has fallen flat on that face, that person that has laid under the broom tree depressed and ready to throw in the towel through despair, that person, that is the one that I will use to establish the prophets, that I will use to carry forward to another generation the good news that the Lord reigns and Baal is impotent to bring my people to bring the remnant back to me. You see, falling isn't futile. That God never wastes a fall in the life of his children. Let me say that one more time. God never wastes a fall in the life of his children. One of you right now may still have the dust on you from where you've fallen flat. You've sinned. Or you've failed in some endeavor that you, that you pursued. You've, you've dishonored the Lord or you've abandoned the Lord. And maybe this morning, maybe this morning, you, it took all the guts and courage that you had to, to slide yourself into the back row at the, end of the, at the beginning of the service so that nobody else would notice you because the dirt is still on your face and on your clothes and you're stained. And you think, you think it's very likely that there is no chance that God could use me now. Can I tell you that you are in exactly the position, exactly the position that God likes to use someone. You're in exactly the place that God likes to use someone. I want you to notice what he says there in verse 2. It says, and Elijah said to Elijah, please stay here for the Lord has sent me. Who sent me? The Lord has sent me. So, So you have Elijah and he's going on this tour of the schools of prophets. 
But what we're supposed to understand here is that this is not just some nostalgic, uh, you know, farewell tour for Elijah. That this is something that the Lord has called him to do. That the Lord has sent him specifically on this journey. And I think that the reason is, is to encourage all three groups of people that are involved here. I think it's supposed to be intent, intended to see that on the other side of the failure, on the other side of the fall, God had continued to work through Elijah. God had continued and shown himself faithful in spite of the weakness of Elijah. That he is supposed to remind Elijah God had been faithful. It's supposed to encourage Elisha, the successor of Elijah, God will be faithful. It's supposed to prove to the prophets of the Lord that had not capitulated that the Lord is worthy of his name and the Lord will use weak and, and fallen men to accomplish his glory and to, and to pour out and make known his name among the nations. That is, God used, God used the lowest point of Elijah's life to prepare him for the greatest ministry. God used the lowest point of Elijah's life to prepare him for his greatest and most effective season of ministry. Do you remember what Elijah's chief complaint was against God? And what we said last week was his actual failure? Repeatedly, he says what to the Lord? I, I, even I only, am the only prophet that remains. I, even I only, am the only one of your people that are still here. And God is saying, no, Elijah, you have never been alone. But look at the work that God uses Elijah to accomplish. He says, you think that you're alone. You think that I put all of this hinged upon some hairy prophet that lives out in the wilderness and is fed by the beaks of birds. You think I depended my plan on you. No, 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 no. What I'm actually going to do is use you to raise up hundreds of prophets in multiple locations that you will know by the time that you step out into eternity, you were not alone. You were never the solitary plan. I was always in control. I was always working through you. That the Lord loves to take people covered in the dust of the earth to pick them up and to dust them off by his sovereign hand and to send them on their way to Bethel for their most effective ministry yet. But what does fear tell us? What does fear tell us? The fear of what might be. Fear tells us, but what if you fall again? What if you sin again? What if you blow it again? And here's the Lord reminding us, didn't I use the fall last time? You thought the fall was the end last time, but the fall wasn't the end. In fact, your fall is never filled with futility. Your fall is submitted to my sovereignty, and I will work through that fall to advance my name through you in spite of you. The fear comes in and it says, but what if I'm not ready? What if I'm not prepared for this new season of ministry that you have for me? What if I'm not ready for this new business that you've called me to, to go and to use for the advancement of your name and for the support of your church? What, what if I'm not ready to answer all the questions that my kids have or that my friend has? What, what if I'm not ready for the confrontation that might come through the event? Like, what if I'm not ready? Do you see what God had done in Elijah's life? He did the same thing in Elijah's life that he does in our lives. God used every moment in the past of Elijah's life to prepare him for the mission of right now. And that's what he does. 
God uses all of our lives up until this point to prepare us for the work that he has for us today. Yesterday's falls, yesterday's successes, yesterday's failures, yesterday's sins, yesterday's discouragements, yesterday's wins. Yesterday prepares me for what I am going to face in the kingdom of God today. Today. So what if I'm not ready? Oh, the Lord says, with my help, let me promise you, you are ready. You, yesterday, was not futility in my eyes. Yesterday was a school of preparation for the work that I have set before you today. Because you see, fear isn't final. Fear isn't final. Oh, this is, this is beautiful. That's our fear, isn't it? That's our greatest fear, isn't it? That our worst nightmares become our reality, and that's as good as it gets. It's, it's the end. It's the period, right? Like, like it's the conclusion of our life. It's the end of the story. That's what we're really ultimately afraid of, isn't it? Like if somebody could come and tell me that, you know, it's going to be really, really bad for about five months, and then after that it's going to be awesome, I could probably get on board with that. It's the uncertainty of not knowing what lies in the future. It's the uncertainty of what might be in the days ahead of me. That's what I'm afraid of, and that's what Elijah was afraid of. But you remember Elijah was there under the broom tree and he was so afraid that he wanted to what? Die. Die. I don't want to live. Which is interesting since Jezebel is chasing him down and he's so afraid that he's going to die. So it's really ironic there that he would say, hey, I hope I don't, I I wish I would just die. You you want to just say, well, just wait on Jezebel. She's on her way. Right? (laughs) But here's the prophet that had failed so miserably that he wanted to die. And what does he do? Well, let's read it together. It says, I'm sorry. It says that the behold, chariots and of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind where into heaven the prophet who wanted to die never even tastes death. What if he had not seen the end of God's plan? What if God had not been so kind as to sustain him under the broom tree? What if God had not been so good as to make sure that Elijah wouldn't go for it? What if God would have not been so good as to say no to the prayer of Elijah? He would have missed out on the greatest experience of his life, to be ushered into heaven by the very hand of God himself. Oh, this is 201 course, but this is beautiful. This is beautiful, so I want you to stay with me. Do you remember what I told you about Elijah last week? That he's kind of a second coming of Moses. Moses is the giver of the law. He's the beginning of the law. Elijah, he's the, he's the really beginner, the prototype of the prophet. So, so Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. I think here in this miraculous take up into heaven by the chariots of fire is supposed to bring into our minds Deuteronomy chapter 34 and the mysterious death of Moses. He was the other one that had a mysterious death. Do you remember? He, he wants to go and to take God's people into the promised land, but he's not going to do it because of the generation before him that had fallen, that had sent the, the spies into Canaan and said, God can't even deliver us here. And so right there at the, end of the, at the edge of Canaan, God takes him and he hides him up in the mountains and, and he allows Moses to die in a way that is mysterious and unknown by the people of God. Moses' dream never came true, did it? Moses dreamed of stepping into the land of fruit and honey, of, of milk and honey, being able to see the lush gift, the promised land of God. It's not all that different from Elijah, is it? 
Here's Elijah, and Elijah has this mysterious exit from the earth in some way reminiscent of that of Moses. But Elijah's dream had been what? To rid all of Israel from the idolatry of Baal, to rid them so that they would be holy and totally heart, mind, and spirit engaged with Yahweh. But he never sees it come to fruition, does he? That is until Matthew chapter 17. In the Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, there's Jesus and James and John and Peter. And he transfigures into his glory so that they are able to behold the Savior in a light that is not the humble, meek, homeless Savior that they've come to know. To see him there, representative of his glory. As he transfigured, two other figures join him there. And who are they? These men of mysterious exits in the Old Testament. The Moses, representative of the law. Elijah, representative of the prophet. And I want you to say, if they were able to take their eyes off of the transfigured Lord for even a second, there is Moses for the very first time with his feet in the midst of the promised land. Seeing my dream, I thought it didn't come true. But here I am standing, beholding the glory of the risen Christ in the land promised to them by the Father. Oh, Oh, God had sustained him. His fear was not final. And there's Elijah. He's watching in the promised land, the transfigured Lord. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the one that is actually going to transform the heart of God's people. Jesus is the one that is actually going to rid all of the promised land from the idolatry of Baal. Jesus is the one that has come to inaugurate a greater kingdom beneath the sovereign reign of Almighty God so that his name and his people are only engaged in the worship of of the one who has come to love him. Oh, his dream does come true. His dream does come true, just not the way that he thought he would. You know, we don't die either. If we're in Christ, you know that? And so this, this land that we live in right now is filled with brokenness and it's filled with sadness and it's filled with hardship and it's filled with fear. The fear of what might be, the fear of what might come. But we know what comes. We know who comes. We know how the story ends. We know where this is happening. This is not as good as it gets. Your worst fears will not be the definition of your future. Fear is not final because fear has been overcome by the resurrection of the risen Christ. That is that we are reminded, like Elisha was as he walked that path with Elijah that day, that there is a f- one who is more fearsome than the fears that we know in this world. There is one that is more worthy of all of our thoughts than where we're going to get our next salary. Or where, what might happen to our children. Or what might go on with our business. Or what might happen with our home. Or, or how we can have a, a, a better car than the car that we're driving right now. There is one who is worthy on a higher plane as a greater reality for the thoughts of our mind. And it is the Lord. The Lord. And that is why that he is the fear that sets you free. Because knowing and focusing on him who is on a higher plane. Seated upon a higher throne. I don't have to worry about all this right now. That is, it's the fear of who really is instead of the fear of what might be. See, there's a way for someone to live in a dictatorship beneath the rule of an awful and evil man and still live as a free person, even though they're persecuted, even though they're oppressed. 
A man like that was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor and a theologian that lived and uh, at the same time as Nazi Germany ascended and as World War II carried on. Ultimately, Bonhoeffer would be arrested and imprisoned and then executed for his role in the Valkyrie plot to assassinate Hitler, which he believed to be his moral imperative, his moral responsibility. But it was during an era in which the majority of the churches in Germany were capitulating to the Nazi agenda that they might be able to continue in openness and be able to maintain their funding. But I want you to listen. One of the doctors that was there at the execution of Bonhoeffer as the result of this plot, this is what he wrote. And he was a Nazi. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayers. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, and then he climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Does that sound like an oppressed man or a free man to you? Does that sound like an oppressed man or a free man? Does that sound like a man who was afraid or does that sound like a man that was set free? How is it possible that a man could walk to the gallows under the persecution of the government and be able to lay down his life with such freedom? I think if you go back to a sermon that Bonhoeffer preached soon after the ascension of Hitler over Germany, you get to the, the thrust, what drove him through, what caused him and compelled him to live underneath this toxic regime with the freedom that is his in Christ and what is available to us. And I wish I could just stand and read the whole sermon to you. It's worth it. But here's a snippet. 1933, he wrote these words. God lets our lives be broken and fail in every direction. Though fate and guilt and through this very failure, God brings us back. We are thrown back upon God alone. God wants to show us that when you let everything go, when you lose all your own security and have to give it up, that is where you are totally free to receive God and be kept totally safe in God. In other words, the answer to the fear that plagues our age, the answer to the anxiety that encroaches upon our life, the answer to the trembling of what might come tomorrow is a greater fear and a greater God who is actually in control, a fear that says, I want to be as close to my creator, as close to my provider, as close to my protector as possible, for he is an awesome and fearsome Lord. And so that's the question facing Elisha. As Elisha deals and, and faces the future of uncertainty, now as the guy, instead of one of the guys, as, as the leader of the prophets, instead of the successor of the leader of the prophets, the question comes before him, who will he fear? What will he fear? What will lead him forward? And so we begin to see that faith, fear always precedes faith. Fear always Proceeds faith. I want you to notice the journey that Elisha and Elijah go on. All right, so they start in Gilgal. And they go from Gilgal and then they go to Bethel. By, by the way, this is about a 30 mile walk for a man, an elderly man, at the end of his life. Okay, God did not have an easy assignment here on the last day of Elijah's life. So they go from Gilgal to Bethel and they go from Bethel down to Jericho, and then they go from Jericho down to the edge of the Jordan River. Now, what's significant about that? 
it doesn't even appear that Elijah and Elisha are fully understanding the reason that God has sent them on this particular journey. Elijah and Elisha think they're just visiting the prophets. If you go back and you read Joshua chapter 1 through, verse, through Joshua chapter 8, you know what you find? Is that what they do is they actually retrace the steps of Joshua backwards to the very beginning. Backwards to the other side of the Jordan, which is where Joshua stood there with trembling knees, unsure of what the future was going to behold without Moses there to raise up that mighty staff. And so here is Elisha being taken back to the starting line of Joshua because if Elijah is Moses, Elisha is Joshua. And let me just tell you, that is no easier task to undertake. But do you remember there on the other side of the Jordan, the advice that God gave to, to, to Joshua? Do you remember the counsel, the, the instruction that God gave to Joshua? He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you think that's not ringing in the mind of the prophet who has the the first five books of the Bible memorized. You don't think those words are, are reminiscing with him as he stands there looking at Jericho on the other side of the Jordan where Joshua would have been? Yeah, there with trembling knees is the Lord bringing to his mind and to his heart, be courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Do not think the job is too big. Do not think for a second that you're alone. Do not think for a second this is about your strength or your power or your intellect. Do not think for a second this is about you at all. No. Press on across the Jordan. Press on into Israel because I, I am with you and I will always be with you as I was with my, my servant Moses as I was with my servant Joshua, as I was with my servant Elijah. This morning, what are you afraid of? Or whom are you afraid of? That's the question. And really the way that I think we get down to the answer to that question is are you more devoted to yourself or are you devoted to the Lord entirely? You see, if I'm devoted to myself now I'm afraid that I might lose my, my standard of living right here and right now. If I'm devoted to myself, now I'm afraid of what other people might think of me because it affects my prestige, it affects my reputation. If, if I'm worried about myself, then I'm worried about the, the difficulties that may come in the days ahead or I'm, I'm worried about the costs that may accrue. But if my only concern is devotion to the Lord, then I can stand there on the other side of the Jordan. And I can, without knowing what the future holds and not knowing what the hardship that lies ahead, I can say, Lord, I am your man. I will walk without fear. I will walk without concern. I will go where you send me to do what you have for me to do because I am devoted unto you. See, the fear of the Lord is the backbone of true courage. It's not, it's not inward resolve. It's, it's not some feigned concept of masculinity. The true courage that one is able to have comes through a backbone, not of steel because men don't have those and women don't have those, but through a backbone of faith in the Lord. You see, if it didn't require faith, it wouldn't be scary. But because it requires faith, it brings about Fear, 
Fear is also always in a relationship with faith that way. Fear always precedes faith that way. If it wasn't wasn't scary, you wouldn't need faith at all. But the life that God has called you to, the ministry that God has called you to, the work that God has called you to, the family that God has called you to, the community that God has called you to, it can only be accomplished through His strength, through His ways, through His name, through His might. And it will require you to stop trusting yourself Stop devoting your life to your own agenda and trust fully and entirely up to him because you're going to need courage. You're going to need courage. To follow after the Lord hurts. See, pain always precedes power in the Bible. Pain always precedes power in the Bible. And if there is anything that we as human beings are afraid of, we're afraid of pain, aren't we? This was certainly the case for Elijah and Elisha. We, we saw last week the painful ministry of Elijah, but I want you to notice that after Elijah goes and he parts the, parts the Jordan by slamming the cloak of the prophet down into the waters, that on the other side he finally gets around to the question that's probably been bugging him for a long time. Ask what I shall do for you. In other words, why in the world have you been following me around all day? Hey, I've told you and told you and told you to leave me alone. and You keep following me around. What is it that you want, man? Look at what Elisha says. Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. What's he talking about there? I think we should understand it in two dimensions. First of all, remember what he, what he, calls, what he calls Elijah. He calls Elijah his father, right? That's the same thing that Elijah had called, he, that I have, I have not done any better than my father's. We saw that last week in 1 Kings chapter 19, right? So what he has in mind is Elijah's responsibility, his job. That, in other words, the eldest son of the father always received a double portion of the estate. He became the primary keeper and, and manager of the estate. And so what we have here is Elisha asking Elijah to let him be his successor, to finally take the cloak from himself and place it upon Elijah to pass his mantle quite literally to the next generation. They already knew the call of God. It was time for the confirmation. But there's something else I think that's there. Elisha had recognized that Elijah had uniquely had the power and the presence of God in his life. And here's Elisha looking at what was, who is considered throughout the scriptures to be the greatest of all the prophets until we get to Christ. And he's thinking, I'm not that man. Have you ever felt that way? I'm not that guy. How do I follow him? And he says, as much as you needed the Lord, I need him twice as much. Give me a double portion. That, that is, in other words, if you go to the, the picture of Isaac blessing Jacob, isn't that what he's doing? He's calling down the blessing of the Lord, that fatherly blessing on his son, that the Lord would answer and keep all of his promises to his son. And so I think what we have here is him asking for that, that inheritance of a son and asking for that fatherly blessing, that he would pray that the Lord's presence would be there upon him to sustain him throughout the ministry. And th- that is exactly what brings into our mind a conversation from Matthew chapter 18. Do you remember? See, Elijah, Elijah was under no false assumption. He knew what the cost, he knew how heavy that prophet's cloak was. It, it enables you to go and see the Jordan part. Yeah, there's power, there's, it's, it's miraculous, but it also causes you to have to stand in front of kings and say things that just might get you killed. It might send you into hiding in the midst of the wilderness. It's a heavy burden to take. 
is a burden that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, didn't understand when they go to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. Do you remember what she asked him? This audacious question, will you let my boys be on your right and on your left in the kingdom of heaven? And what does Jesus say? You do not know what you are asking. Same response, isn't it? You don't know what you're asking. And he says, because if you're going to come after me, if you're going to go where I'm going, I'm going to the cross. That greatness in the kingdom of God is cruciform in nature. Yeah, the resurrection is coming, but the pathway to the resurrection is by laying down one's life on the cross. It is to take upon themselves their own cross. Or in Elisha's case, it is to take upon yourself the prophet's cloak and all of the pain that comes in the journey. Yeah. You're going to follow after Jesus, brothers and sisters. It's going to hurt. It's going to be a life that is filled with, with difficulty. It's going to be a life that causes you to do without some of the things that your friends have. It's going to be a life that causes you to parent in a way that, that may make your kids frustrated with you at times. They don't understand. It's going to be a life that, that causes the outside world to sometimes think that you're just crazy. It's going to be a life that is painful. But the pain always comes before the power. The crucifixion always comes before the resurrection. And so what is the responsibility of Elisha here and in our lives today is that we must allow the fear of God to drive away the fear of pain in our lives that when our greatest fear is that God won't get enough glory from my life that God won't get enough praise from my life that God won't get enough won't be able to advance his kingdom enough through me then all of a sudden now I'm not afraid of poverty I can go to the mission field if that's where God is calling me and some, God's calling some of you and you're afraid the fear of God must drive away the fear of pain some of you, God is calling you to go and witness to people in the workplace, but there's that fear of awkwardness. There's this fear of the loss of the relationship, the pain that might come, but the fear of the Lord must drive away this fear of pain. There's this fear of awkwardness of, of, of being able to begin having spiritual conversations with my kids and not really knowing when to start. What if I mess up? The fear of God must drive away this fear of pain. Because see, pain precedes power, but risk precedes reward, always, every time. Risk precedes reward. Y you can imagine, there is a, a Elisha, and he's in the exact same place that Joshua was. And Joshua is there, and this is before he's seen the walls of Jericho fall down. This is before he's seen the sun stand still. This is before he has seen the miraculous work there in the in the promised land and God says then what I'm going to do I'm going to prove to you that I'm going to be re to I'm going to reward you but you're going to have to take the risk you're going to have to take the first step you're going to have to go where I'm leading so take the ark of the covenant using the priest into the Jordan and the sign that I'm going to be with you is that the water is going to stand up on both sides and you are going to walk through you will know that I'm with you so keep walking keep taking the risk face down Jericho face down the armies that come because you will know even though it's risky and even though it's terrifying you will know the presence of the Lord is with you and here's Elisha he's watched as his mentor is ridden off in a fiery chariot unto heaven and that cloak that cloak Elijah doesn't take it with him that cloak falls back down to earth that heavy heavy cloak of the prophet and Elisha takes it and he puts it together just like he had saw his mentor doing it 
And right there on the side of the Jordan, the same place where God had told, uh, told Joshua, be of good courage, press on, do not be afraid. There with trembling knees, Elisha raises up the cloak and all of his future is hinged on this one moment. Will the presence of God confirm my calling or not? And with every bit of faith he can muster, he swings the cloak down and strikes the Jordan and the water stands back up so that one more time God could tell one more of his servants, I am with you. The days will be hard. The burdens will be heavy. The cross will be gruesome, but the resurrection is on the other side. Brothers and sisters, everybody wants to see the Jordan split, but hardly anybody wants to walk the painful walk of the cross. But I'm here to tell you that the pain, the pain leads to power. The risk leads to reward. That there is a place that is coming. There is a kingdom that is coming and it is coming through those who are bearing the cross of Jesus Christ who say I will not fear what might be I will not fear what the world may say I will not fear what my neighbors may think I will not fear the cost that it may incur I will fear the Lord and that brothers and sisters that is a fear that liberates let's pray to the Lord together this morning Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.